Hello, I'm Mark Steinberg. I'm on the Culture Matters podcast. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, Mark. Um, hope you're okay. We decided to... Um, uh, to tutoyer uh, each other, to um, the, to call you by the first name, really. Um, so that's um, that's let's let's do that. But let's first introduce yourself a little bit, because I mean, I know more about you a little bit more, and I've I've learned a lot of your work um, as well, or from your work. Um, and then please um, give us a bit of an introduction about who you are, where you are, and what is your your so-called um, cultural frame of reference. Okay, so I'm I'm Mark Steinberg. I'm a um, now recently retired professor from the University of Illinois. That mm-hmm. I've taught at a couple of places before that. Uh, so after oh 35 years of teaching, I'm now focusing my time on writing uh, mm-hmm. and research, which is which is great. Um, I um, wrote a whole bunch of books, uh, including I'm right now working on the revision to a history of Russia together with Nicholas Rizinovsky, who died three editions ago. So about every five years, I revise it. So up to the present. Uh, and I work on history of the Russian Revolution. I've written a couple books on that. Uh, history of workers and their experiences in Russia. A uh, recent book on utopia that just came out about a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, thinking about utopian ideas in Russian history. Uh, and uh, worked on religion worked on urban life. I've written a book on St. Petersburg and I'm working another comparative urban history uh, right now. Um, Where I am, I'm actually, yes. Yeah, seems like you're a busy man. (laughs) Yes, and and that was when I was teaching. Now I can really devote full time to writing. Okay. Um, And also also learning Italian because I spend my time, but when I retired, I now live in Brooklyn, New York, uh, great libraries and, also in Turin, Italy, where my wife uh, teaches history of Russian ideas ah, okay. uh, at the university. Okay, so you're you're ba- basically going up and down between New York and uh, and I guess Milano, uh, something like uh, that. Turin, Torino. Okay, all right. Um, so right. yeah, no, go go ahead. You ask cultural frame of reference uh, is an interesting question. So my. Partly, my cultural frame of reference in relationship to Russia is that's where my uh, grandparents all came from. Uh, and my, in fact, my mother was born in a Russian Jewish community in Manchuria, in China, uh, under Japanese occupation, uh, but it was a Russian community. Um, and of course, obviously, I've been studying professionally Russia for a long time and spent an enormous amount of time there uh, until now, until the war when I can't access it, except online. I'm going to be in a conference in a week with Russian colleagues. Uh, but but I spent a lot of time living there. I have uh, friends. I've spent a lot of time in archives. So it's a sort of cultural frame of reference is a mixture of the personal, the academic scholarly, right? The scientific, as Russians would say, and lived experience, spending a lot of time there. 
I reckon you speak Russian then as well. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I'm very happy that you're here, that you're on the show, particularly because of what's going on currently in the world, um, which has yeah. my 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 personal interest. Also, um, I've been listening to your lectures uh, on on a Russia, oh. a a history of Russia up until Gorbachev. That's where that's that edition. That's yeah. the one I I, I got. And also because um, my partner is Russian, so that is also that's that's um, sparks another another bit of interest. So let let's let's get to some um, some well for me interesting questions really, uh, and let's get to the chase immediately. Um, are we going to have a third world war because of this? That's just it, it, I mean it's serious, maybe as silly as serious yeah, as it is. No, it's a very serious one, and I do think about that a lot. And I used to not think that was even a remote possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a saying historians have that it's it's hard enough to predict the past without predicting the future. Right. And in the sense, difficulty of predicting the past is when you deep study any particular era particularly deeply, one of the things you realize if you're serious about, about understanding it is that at any moment there are multiple possibilities. And when you, if I, whether it's 1917 or any period in Russian history from the beginning, knowing what's going to come next even though we know what came next is actually very hard to know because there are always possibilities and that's no less true for the future obviously um yes so a nuclear war uh the third world war uh even a tactical nuclear war which would be a disaster for europe if not much of the world uh, is absolutely possible uh i used to think not i used to think the rationality on all sides you know, the mutually assured destruction and all the phrases we used to use prevented rational people from doing what was going to be destructive. But I have to say, I think a lot of what Putin and his allies, it's never just Putin, and a good deal of his countrymen are doing is not only irrational, but not in the best interests of Russia from any point of view. Is that... Uh, And therefore, taking that risk is possible. Is that... um, um... Is that a colored Western opinion that you have? In other words, can you take yourself, can you take your Western or Anglo-Saxon or even American view out of this this analysis? I think not. Um, I, I, I'm able to talk with my Russian friends, mm-hmm. um, usually Skype or Telegram or other ways that they hope is not monitored. Yeah. Uh, and they're still guarded. They're still, of course, I used to live in, there in the Soviet Union. I've been going to Russia since 1983. So I remember what it was like when people learned how to be careful in what they say. And yet the idea that they cannot believe this behavior, this war, uh, is very clear. They feel a great deal of shock. They feel a great deal of personal shame. One of the things Russians that I know tend to feel, many Russians feel, is what didn't we do to prevent this? Because yeah. this shouldn't yeah. be happening. What what did what was our failure? They take it personally as right. a personal responsibility. Uh, and the idea that anything could happen um, is is very strong. I mean, there are protests every day at enormous risks. And the people who are engaging in these protests realize that they are they're responsible. I mean, they failed to prevent this war, although I don't think they could have done anything. No, I don't think it's their fault. They feel it. Yeah. But they're trying to prevent exactly the catastrophe you mentioned. Uh, worse coming, more death, 
perhaps nuclear war, perhaps the destruction of Russia's place in the world, which is what Putin fears, but he's actually bringing it closer. Yeah. Uh, so no, I don't think this is a Western perspective. I think it's shared by many, not most Russians, but many Russians. In the defense of Vladimir Putin, the president of, of the Russian Federation, which from now on I'll call Russia, um, is in the defense of, of what he's doing, and this is an argument that the economists came up with, which which I think makes sense in a way, the expansion of NATO, eastward, 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 there is a convention or an agreement, um, I don't know what year, was it the 1950s or 60s, NATO will not expand eastward, and NATO has expanded eastward, and that is an argument that the econ- economists wrote about in terms of, well, this is the logic that Putin and his allies, as you correctly say, is putting forward in terms of justifying what is going on right now. Is is there any sense in that? So Russians have a saying, right? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you don't have enemies. And it is absolutely true. While I'll come to the paranoia here, uh, the the threat is real uh, or, or the reason to perceive threat uh, is real. I mean, Russians have been promised repeatedly that NATO wouldn't expand. The countries on Russia's eastern border have become increasingly nervous and demanded inclusion. I mean, when Finland has yeah. to be included, this is a, I was shocked uh, because that's something that changes Finland's relationship to Russia that goes back centuries. Yes. Um, so, yes, there's a real reason. NATO expansion, the strength of the EU, uh, the revolutions that have taken place in uh, Ukraine and Georgia, the, the so-called colored revolutions, mm-hmm. the increasing hostility of the former Eastern Bloc countries, the former Warsaw Pact countries toward Russia, distrust anyway, certainly gave uh, many in Russia reason to think uh, that they were, their security was threatened. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, I mean, I've read almost all of Putin's speeches over the last, well, I, I, as a historian, my and I write about the present. I read. I, I, I like to read people's own words. I think that's the biggest insight. And yes. especially since the war, I've read just about every major speech Putin has given, mm-hmm. and what he presents. In, in fact, increasingly, more and more intensely, is that the West has waited its entire much of its history since Russia existed to destroy Russia, to dismantle Russia, mm-hmm. uh, to as he likes to say, finally, they see the opportunity to finish us off once and for all, mm. uh, a loose translation of his Russian. Mm-hmm. And this sense that this is an, there is an existential threat because the West has decided to end Russia's existence, to subordinate it, to break it apart into smaller bits, uh, to take away its sovereignty. That, I think, is not justified. I think that that becomes a paranoia. That becomes... A, a perception, an anxiety, a fear that uh, is not justified by NATO expansion. I think any intelligence officer in Russia could look at what the reasons for NATO expansion are and see this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. To be surrounded on the borders is dangerous. But to in, to launch a war against a country that would like to be part of NATO, that is a, an independent country and has been for a long time, to declare that that country has no right to exist, that there is no real Ukrainian nation historically, that only makes the situation worse. I mean, the reason Finland joined NATO is precisely because of the war. It would not have. And so I think if, if, if Putin has real reason to fear Russophobia in the West, which is, I think exists, 
as a yeah. leftover and continuation of the Cold War. It's very easy to for um, Americans anyway, the place I live, uh, to fall into, ah, it's those Russians again. It, during the Cold War, we never called them Soviets. We called them the Russians. Yeah. So it exists, fear and anxiety. Um, but what has happened is that is worse than ever, ever before. It is precisely the wrong action to solve the problem. I mean, right. the action would have been diplomatic. Uh, there, there's so many other ways to make sure that NATO expansion ultimately wasn't a threat to Russia. And so I think there's a weird way in which, yes, there, I, I mean, I didn't, I don't, I didn't think NATO had to expand even mm -hmm. as much as it did. I understand the reasons the countries on Russia's border required and expected and demanded that. Uh, but Russia's response was way out of proportion and irrational in its own interests. And that's, that's what worries me a lot is there were better solutions. In, if you go back in history, in not only Russia, in many, many countries, uh, many revolutions, I'm thinking about the, the French revolutions in 1789, um, 1830, 1840, what is it, 1841, 1845, uh, and, and so on, and and they disliked the aristocracy they uh, the, the the government if you want or the leaders were not connected to the people anymore um is is putin at this moment doing the same thing or is he doing it right because he is actually putting more money in the economy simply in his own economy to to keep the people quiet it, it's a bit of a question or rhetorical question i don't know so you know Again, this is where I, I really do believe that the actions of this war are counter to Russia's and even Putin's own interest, other mm -hmm. than Putin's sense he'll go down in history as the savior of Russia, which he, is not how he's going to go down in history, probably not even Russian history. In the 1990s, after the end of communism, Russia was incredibly free. I, I spent a lot of time living there, incredibly exciting, full of possibility, but economically a disaster. There was corruption, there was mafias, there was crime on the streets, there was real poverty, especially for senior citizens. Uh, there was inequality at the workplace. It was a mess. And people were frightened and in many cases hungry. Um, not the sort of hunger of starvation, but a sense of why are we living this way? It was better under communism. At least we were all at a sort of level of subsistence and it was mm -hmm. adequate, except for the elite. Uh, and then the elite grew. I mean, you suddenly saw fancy shops and rich yeah. oligarchs and most people suffered. Putin's time from 2000 to now, he's been mm -hmm. in power almost a quarter of a century. Yeah. For most of that time, the one thing he kept saying is, look, the 90s was a mess. It was a disaster. Uh, I'm going to end that. I'm going to end corruption. He, he more or less, yeah, not entirely, but he did reign in the oligarchs to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to most importantly, uh, as you say, put money into the economy, indeed, into people's pockets. And I mean, I remember living, to be sure, it was not as good in the provinces, but even then it got better in small cities. But in Moscow, in Petersburg, uh, life was getting pretty good. There was a growing middle class who could afford to go out to restaurants and cafes, which proliferated, yep. who could buy yep. some nice clothes, some made in Russia, some imported, didn't matter. Basically, the standard of living 
got better and yeah. life became more predictable. That is ending. That is ending. The economy is suffering because everything has to be directed to the military effort. There's a lot to direct. I mean, Russia has enormous resources still, far more than Ukraine, although if the West backs Ukraine forever, then they're more equally matched. Yeah. Uh, but the economy is really suffering. People aren't getting the goods. Restaurants and cafes have closed. There's complete uncertainty about the future. No one's sure what it'll be like. In other words, if there was a deal that Putin made, mm -hmm. and I think there was, I will give you a good standard of living, an improving economy, a sense of stability. The world will respect us. This is what he said he was doing. He acknowledged this. The world will, will respect us because they know we don't get pushed around, but also because we're a positive player in world affairs. Yeah. We contribute. We, we are part of, you know, it's like G7 plus one. I mean, there was a way in which Russia was being included. Russians were thinking, well, you know, for that, we'll give up some freedom. We'll let Putin be a bit of a dictator, crush dissent, create a one-party system. Basically, there's only one party, his mm -hmm. party, in, in the Duma, in the parliament. Um, so it was a trade. People said, okay, we'll take um, growing authoritarianism, but economy will be stronger. And those people, you know, it's like I have a lot of colleagues in universities. They were not threatened. You could say what you want and do what you want. Don't go out on the streets and protest against Putin or against local uh, officials, but you can say anything you want in the university and you can invite foreigners and talk about whatever you want. In other words, there was a limited amount of freedom, yeah. a good economy in exchange for um, letting his authoritarianism increasingly grow. People accepted that. So now he's undoing all that, except for the authoritarianism, which keeps growing. So again, I see the deal that he was making is being uh, undone. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm listening and thinking. Um, is there, and, and is there still, or is it an upcoming again, um, a sort of hidden serfdom in Russia at this moment? Because hidden that has that's, that has existed for 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 well for years. I mean, slaves, serfdom, slavery, whatever name you want to give it. Yeah. So I mean, that's of course. I mean, there was for the majority of the population who were rural people working on farms. Yeah. Um, from the you know <laughs> muscovite era from you know easily the 1400s or so on uh there was a large class who could who were basically obliged to work for their masters in mm -hmm. one way or another mm -hmm. that really hasn't i mean one could argue there there's a way in which some people uh, argue that uh that came back uh in so in late soviet times whether it was a collective farm or a state farm or working for a state factory uh, but it was, if if one could call the Russian people, um, uh, the Soviet people, that includes Ukrainians and others, uh, serfs, it was a pretty, it was a, it was a tolerable serfdom, especially after, after Stalin died, because it was one in which you couldn't get fired from your job. Uh, yes, you couldn't move around. It was very hard to, you know, change your residency. Uh, but you had a secure job. There was a lot of upward mobility if you worked hard and got an education, if you were loyal to the system. Uh, it was, let's say, if it was serfdom, it was a tolerable one. Uh, with the end of communism, they can't control people's lives in that same way economically. So what they've done is, is one might say these are um, citizens uh, with some measure of legal protection. I wouldn't call them serfs but increasingly fundamental 
um, one might say human rights are being limited. The right to the the right to live in a peaceful society, the right to not feel threatened for speaking out. Human one of the one of the core human rights has always been freedom of speech, uh, and the right to live in an economy that is you know that is improving for everybody, not just for the elite. That that was beginning to change, but uh, except for the freedom side of it. Uh, but but the demand for human rights, and you know, you go back to the you mentioned French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. Yeah, one could argue, yes, yeah. in part, these are about food, about material things, mm-hmm. right? But really, uh, everywhere, I mean, I've I've studied especially the Russian Russian revolutions, nineteen oh five, both revolutions of nineteen seventeen, which were two rather different revolutions in a way. Uh, and what I find is, yes, the big demand was you know bread, right? yeah, which symbolically food but it was never just the only demand the demand was uh very often what you'd hear is people said uh treat us like human beings not like animals not like machines this was the sort of language would use not, not like serfs to use to use your metaphor yeah uh and the desire to have basic human rights they didn't always use that phrase is very very strong and i think that's if there's any hope for russia in the future just as all the changes that happened in the past, the idea that human beings should be treated like human beings mm. and that there's some sort of universal standard is a very strong feeling. I mean, in the end of the Soviet period, the main demand, the way it was, this was phrased, I think it's still the same idea as mm. fundamentally treating people like human beings, human rights, is they said, we just want a, in Russian, they had a great phrase, <clears throat> we just want a normal life. Uh-huh. And that question of what does it mean to live a normal life, uh, you can imagine it basically meant living life like most people in the in the West anyway were mm-hmm. living with security, with peace, with you have reason to have children because you know your life is going to get better and their life will be better. Uh, some basic degrees of freedom, being treated like a human being. And that has probably been the demand people have been making in, in that same phrase since uh, Stalinism since the end of Stalinism, especially. And that's what they're missing. They want a normal life again. They were beginning to have it. You're, you're, you're sort of segueing in yourself into my next question is, is that are there or, or what are, if there are any parallels in Russian history, as you know it, as you've studied it and, and taught it and current Russia, are there parallels that keep on repeating itself again? Yeah. Um, there was a 19th century historian uh, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, named uh, Kluchevsky, mm-hmm. who wrote a, an amazingly good book, set of books um, on the history of Russia. Um, really, he was sort of a liberal, um, very smart, taught in St. Petersburg. And one of his themes, uh, which the state didn't particularly like, but you know, there was enough freedom he could get published, uh, is that the what he called the hypertrophic state. Mm-hmm. The tendency of the state, uh, especially in a big country like the, Ru- the the Russian Empire, which is what he lived in, or the Soviet Union would follow it, uh, for large states, as Point Montesquieu made famously, uh, the tendency of the state to become hypertrophic, to grow beyond even any normal needs for the society. Right. And the parallel from the state side so there's two stories i would i would point to one is the state side the other is the people mm-hmm. from the state side 
you know, one could, there's all sorts of ways to explain it, but the fact that the state keeps growing fat, large, big, powerful, dominating, hypertrophic, mm-hmm. um, is a sad part of Russia's history that has repeated again and again. I mean, one could go back to, um, and, and in each period, I could tell you the reasons I think as a historian these things happen. It didn't happen because it didn't happen because of culture. Let's put it that way, since your right. podcast is culture yeah. matters. I, I think we can look at other reasons besides culture for explaining it. It isn't the cliche, oh, Russians just love a powerful state. Mm-hmm. But the other side of it is actually what Russians do love. And while there are many Russians in every every one of these periods of Russian history who would prefer security to freedom. Hmm. That's actually not unusual around the world. That That's not just Russians. No, I understand. Um, that is a choice people would make when faced with insecurity. One can see it in Europe, one can see it in America, one can see it all over the world. No. Uh, that There are many people who would, who would gladly trade uh, freedom for security. What's terrible is when they have neither, right? Which is yes. the situation right now in Russia. Um, but there are always large numbers of people. Sometimes they're minorities. Sometimes they are majorities. That's usually when a revolution happens or close to a majority who really believe deeply in uh, the need for freedom. Uh, whatever that means, it means different things to people. Um, sometimes it means people should control the lives that they live live. Mm-hmm. People should not have a state intruding on their private life. People should have a right to say what they want, think what they want, feel what they want without interference, as long as it doesn't harm other people. Sort of the classic liberal uh, idea. And that, one might say, liberal democratic sentiment, which sometimes uh, becomes socialist, because the only way to do that is a society that is concerned with the collective good, many mm-hmm. would argue. Uh, but th- but fundamentally, at its heart, is a liberal democratic idea about the right and dignity of every human being and the need to live in a society that respects that. And that, I could go back again in Russian history and see that argument, although it's particularly strong in the um, from the 18th century on, because partly because Enlightenment ideas where this is articulated become very strong. Before that, those ideas came out of religion, out of the church. And a yep. sense that what Christianity in particular uh, demanded human beings be treated in a different way. And that, too, is part of Russian history. And I see that now. So mm-hmm. in terms of parallels, I, I'm, I'm amazed by the risks people take. They go to prison for it mm-hmm. uh, to protest. And they're protesting because they, they know that it's their it's their duty. It's their obligation. It's the morally necessary thing to do to not be silent in the face of what has become an increasingly horrible um, uh, situation, which people are dying. This isn't just about lack of freedom or a strong, this is about death on both sides. Young Russians are dying as are young Ukrainians. And uh, this war is, there could be others is what people fear. And so they feel this sense of the need to resist in some possible way. And so that too uh, is, is a parallel. How will it turn out? Who will win? the hypertrophic state or the people who believe they should be treated like human beings. Well, in Russian history, there have been times when either both have, both have been present. Unfortunately, most of Russian history, the state wins in most of the world, the state wins Uh, revolutions. You mentioned the French revolution. We can have the same story. 
Yeah, it's true. No, it's true. It's true. It's true. Um, Mark, I'm looking at the at the clock, at the timing here, and yes. um, we've okay. been talking, and I I can I can hear and and um, I can and I can see, of course, how much you enjoy this 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 lecturing, this this sharing well, the the, the about a sad, that you even have. about though it's often about a sad and dark. Well, yeah, it's what what I try to do is to keep this uh, politically neutral and uh, put this in a in a cultural uh, light at least because then indeed that's that is what I do. Um, so I would like to move to the my my two last questions, and one of them is uh, if you can give us three tips on how, in your eyes, you could become more culturally well cult- culturally competent. I would say. Yeah, yeah, it's hard actually. So, you know, one is I think, and it, it sort of builds off my last comment is whatever you think you know about Russia, if you think only one thing, you're wrong. Uh, If you think Russia is Putin, that's true, but it's not the whole story. Russia is also young women on the streets, Pussy Riot, for example, to one globally well-known example. Russia is always many things, Mm -hmm. and Russians are many things. And so I think recognizing all those strands of history, which also open up all those possibilities, including into the future, is really important. So remember the diversity of of Russia. Yep. The second is to really know Russia, you have to know Russians, um, mm-hmm. and that and that doesn't mean hanging out with the elite. It means you know, and many Russians speak English. It's better, obviously, to speak Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to go there. We can't do that now, but the time will come. But there are a lot of people now leaving the country. Uh, spend some time getting to know actual people who grew up there. To be sure, they'll all tell you different things. I mean, I was in a cab the other day in New York City, and the cab driver was telling me how much he loves Putin. Yeah, he's not there. He's here, right? Uh, but other friends say very different things. So remember, remember, you often learn the most from individual people and their experiences. And, okay. and then the other is is uh, to read. Um, r- a lot of Russian news is available online. There's all sorts of sites uh, that you can get, you know, Russian reporting. And, and, and the other is, of course, literature. And, yep. um, uh, for example, Svetlana Alexeyevich, who won the Nobel Prize, P- uh, literature prize recently, is a wonderful writer about contemporary, uh, Russia. Um, so, you know, reading new literature, reading, reading the news, remembering individual people to meet them. And most of all, I think, remembering there are m- many Russians, many Russias exist last question then um how can people get in touch with you should they want to what is the best way for you uh email uh my university email which is s-t-e-i-n-b first part mm-hmm. of my last name at illinois.edu is always the best way okay all right i'll put that in the show notes and i'll make a reference okay. to your um your new and upcoming book that is um the fifth edition you said right a, a, a history about russia yeah. Okay. 10th edition of his the 10th edition my goodness should be out in 2024 but my uh russian utopia book just came out and it's a short book of about 100 plus pages for, for published in london okay all right well thank you so much um for uh, giving or shedding some light on the situation also from, from a historical point of view and i'm pretty sure we'll bump in, into each other in the future real pleasure thank you chris that's it for this episode Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.